say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, world. You're listening to Eleanor Wagner's Strange and Scary World here on the Paranormal UK Radio Network, where we're always creeping it real. I'm your host, Eleanor Wagner. Today's guest is a paranormal investigator with the Soul Sisters Paranormal Group out of Florida. She and her sister Sloots have traveled to some of the most haunted locations across the United States, and today we're going to talk about them. Please join me in welcoming Chris Sumner. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. I don't know if you know it, but I too am a paranormal investigator. Oh, really? Oh, I did not yeah. know that. That's fantastic. Yes, I'm the founder of the Lady Ghostbuster team. Okay, great. Well, we're going to have a lot <laughs> to talk about that. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, we are. Absolutely. Well, from your About section on your website, I read that you officially formed the group in 2014. Mm-hmm. Is your primary location in Florida? It is. That's where I'm from. That's that's my, my state of residency. Right now, I'm actually opening a business in Tennessee with my best friend and fellow investigator Miranda from Ghostbiker Explorations. So she and I are actually opening, uh, well, we opened in September a jail here in the historic Scott County Jail. We have a museum, we have uh, paranormal investigations, we have paranormal research studies that we're doing. We're open for day tours, night tours, flashlight tours, historical tours, all kinds of stuff. So I am in Florida, but right now I'm, I'm kind of cohabitating in Tennessee as well. Oh my goodness, how exciting is that? Wow. <laughs> A lot you're, of fun. You're making a full time career out of this, something that started out as a hobby, really, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Seeing if oh, we can make this work for sure. That's wonderful. That's my dream. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, I saw you have guest investigators and you do collaborations with other sensitives and paranormal investigators. That must be exciting, too. It really is. It really gives us a chance to learn other techniques, to see how other groups in the field really perform their investigations, learn some different, different things that we can do, different role models, if you will 
still in the paranormal community. So it's been a it's it's been a fun journey so far. We've met some great people. Uh, you know, when you really find those like-minded investigators that really have a love of history, of historic preservation, as well as as traveling to these places to to conduct the investigations, it really does form a, clo- a close-knit community for sure. It's true, and I really do agree with you that the historical preservation is an, an extremely important part of this field. We all have to really want to preserve that history. It's important, and you wouldn't have ghosts if you didn't have that history. So <laughs> exactly. I think, I think it's it, it really is a big deal. I know I've seen you've done quite a few investigations. Mm-hmm. How do you have the time to to go to all these places and investigate? I mean, I mean, and you just said you're making a full-time job out of something you're putting together in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do you find all the time to do it? I know I'm squeezing <laughs> stuff in on the weekends and still trying to live a normal life with my family because they're not into the investigating of paranormal as I am. So it makes it a little difficult there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you really do have to find that balance. Um, everybody on the, the team, obviously, we're professionals in our re- respective fields. But for us, it really is something that we enjoy. Soul Sisters Paranormal really started out as a girls trip. So my sisters and I, we live in different parts of the country. So we would routinely get together in different cities just to have a fun weekend. And then in 2014, we had the opportunity to go to Moundsville and the Moundsville West Virginia State Penitentiary there in Moundsville. And so that really was the jumping point for what we do. And we really just kind of incorporate now the girls trip and the the paranormal investigations into one. And so it's something that we plan out. There's a lot of logistics to it, but because we all enjoy it so much, it's it's something that we're, we are very interested in, in, in pursuing. Passionate about. Absolutely. Well, our histories are very similar. I used to go on weekend jaunts with friends of mine as well, doing the haunting, hunting and all that stuff in different locations around the area, the same as you. But I was writing my first book in 2019 about the hauntings in the county. I, I wrote my first book in 2015, but the hauntings series started in 2019. And okay. like you, it kind of fell in my lap with the paranormal team because I was interviewing all these people. And then the gentleman who was the president of the local mines in the area had said, bring your paranormal team in for an investigation. I'm telling you, I'm a scientist. I, I can't explain this stuff that's happening to us, but I'm not <laughs> supposed to believe in it, but I, I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. And I was like jumping at that chance. Oh, great. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. And then I'm going, shit, I don't have a paranormal team. <laughs> so I was like, oh, damn, I got to get one together. And so that's how it actually started. And yeah, the five women that I had invited along on that original investigation, three of them came, took me up on my offer. And they stayed with me through the duration of the, the Lady Ghostbuster team growing. I mean, now we have 20 people that are on the team and we do have some designated men of the group, but. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's so, it's so nice to have investigations come up and then I'll open it up to people who want to participate. It is a bonding experience when you go through these paranormal investigations because it is different, right? You're using different senses. You're using different techniques. It's it's sort of still a subculture, if you will. So kind of delving into that, it's, it's, it is something that, that really does kind of bond you together. Yeah. And it's when you have all that energy in one room, it's amazing what you guys can do. I remember that very first investigation being together and, and nobody knew anybody. We were just all getting together for the very first time. And bouncing off of each other was amazing. I mean, two of the mediums that night just... One was seeing something and the other one was seeing the same thing and they were just finishing each other's sentences. It was just amazing. And even today when they get together, it's like this energetic connection with spirit. It's amazing to watch. I have a little sensitivity, but I'm not nearly as gifted as they are. I've been told it's just a matter of time. I need to grow on it because I kind of shut it down when I was a kid. I wasn't I wasn't nurtured into it. It just was there and it okay. was kind of shut down. And then something happened that made it even more closed for me. Gotcha. But 
I never got to grow it. And so being around it now more often as I have been, it's, it, it is, I can see the expansion and the growth, but I'm not nearly as gifted as some of them because they've been doing this for like 40 years. They've been experiencing it since they were kids and their parents nurtured it and it was in the family and that sort of thing. So I don't, I don't know what your situation is. Was it with you since childhood? Did you have somebody that nurtured it for you or did you have to grow it yourself? Well, we've always had a belief in the paranormal and our, you know, our parents really were fantastic in encouraging our sense of exploration. So whether it be our religious beliefs, whether it be our, our scientific beliefs, you know, however, however we wanted to believe in what was out there in the afterlife, you know, they really left it up to us to decide. I mean, even though we did come from a Christian background, it was really, it's your choice, how you want to believe what you want to believe and we'll support you on that. And it really was one of those things where we always just kind of had an innate belief that there are spirits, that there are angels and there's something after this, but it really wasn't until that invitation to Moundsville that we really decided to pursue this full time in a quest for answers. And and so we use our scientific background because we all have advanced degrees. So I've got a PhD, Jenny has a PhD, we've got two lawyers and a master's holder on the team. So we really use that scientific background to guide the investigations, but also come at it from a research standpoint to where we can, you know, say that we've controlled for all of these different things, these environmental mental factors. And what we're left with is the unexplained. So again, because we're a subculture, you know, we feel that we've got to really put it into a scientific perspective. So those people that want to debate us, which is fine, we love debate, that want to debate us can say, well, did you do this, this and this? And we can say, yes, we did. And so that's really one of the reasons why we really are very meticulous about how we do our investigations and what we do uh, with the evidence that we find. So it wasn't one of those things that we all had like a, a moment where we saw somebody or saw something, it was more like an innate belief that it's out there and we're just trying to communicate with it. Excellent. Well, I I know that I read somewhere on your bio that it's just two of you really working on it together now out of the four. Correct. So, I mean, the the others will investigate when they have time, but Kim had a grandbaby, so that takes up a lot of her time. Michelle got a promotion. Cara moved to Colorado. So really in 2020, it kind of shifted a little bit just for logistic purposes, but they're all always invited on the investigations. It's just now finding, you know, the right mix and the right time. So Jenny and I, my twin, uh, she and I really lead the investigations. Um, we're the ones that, you know, research all of the information and all of that. And Cara, Michelle and Kim will join when they're able. But for the most part, Jenny and I are, are the two core people right this minute. And you said you're opening a jail slash museum. I'm guessing it's haunted. Yes, it is. I'm actually sitting in it right now. Okay. <laughs> so it's the historic Scott County Jail in Huntsville, Tennessee. And it was built in 19. 19- it was an operation until 2008. And then after that, it really just set vacant until last year when Miranda and I just kind of got together and we were talking about maybe opening a haunted location. And um, this really was a unique opportunity for us because she's from the area. She knows this this town. She is really in her backyard of where she grew up. So we approached the town of Huntsville last year and asked if we could, if they'd allow us to open the museum and, and what we wanted to do with the paranormal. And they were absolutely receptive to that. So we opened in September and we've already had 17 paranormal investigation teams investigate. We investigate routinely like pretty much every other night or afternoon or whatever. We're here asking questions and and talking to our resident spirits. So for us, it is very much haunted. A lot of disembodied voices, a lot of intelligent responses and uh, it really is a a very unique location just from a historical standpoint, but also from from the paranormal as well. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Definitely to have that reception from 
from the town and the government there is mm-hmm. a huge thing because far cry from what you would have probably expected 10 years ago because I know people really shied away from this thing and now I'm finding the public and more people are more openly receptive to this sort of thing which is very exciting because it should have been that way a long time ago for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people quote unquote behind closed doors had a fascination with the paranormal or a belief in the paranormal. I think social media has really propelled it into more of a mainstream situation. I mean, you you do have those people that uh, don't believe in, again, that's fine, that don't believe in the paranormal or that have some stance against it, again, perfectly fine. But the more people you talk to, I mean, when you tell somebody you're a paranormal investigator, they either look at you like you have two heads or they want to tell you their ghost story. And most of the time they want to tell you their ghost story. Um, You know, I saw my grandmother or my brother had this happen to him or something like that. So I think it really is kind of, there's more of a spotlight on it now, which is great, especially, you know, when you're trying to open a business geared around the paranormal. So to your point, the the town of Huntsville was extremely receptive and, and the community has been very supportive as well. Now, how far are you away from in Tennessee? How far are you away from Memphis? A few hours from Memphis. We're about... Oh, yeah. We're about an hour's west of Knoxville, like northwest of Knoxville. So Memphis is on the other side of the state. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. You said you make yourself available to investigate private residences and businesses as well. Are you still mm-hmm. going to do that? Oh, absolutely. And now, obviously, that's based on logistics. So, for example, we had somebody message us and ask if we could go investigate their place in Haiti, and we just obviously oh. can't do that, right? I mean, they're, they're within logistical bounds, we can absolutely help. So we've investigated residences, we've investigated businesses, and it, it's interesting because most people, when they approach us, they just want to know that they're believed that somebody believes them, that they are having some type of an experience, whether it's paranormal, they believe that something is is happening to them. Now, that being said, we treat residentials and businesses the exact same the way we would a, a quote unquote commercial location. So we'll go in, we'll do a deep dive into the historical uh, background of the property, of the business, of the owners, and see if we can find anything that's environmental that they just don't think about. So I'd say probably about 60% of the time, we can say, okay, we believe it's this, whether it's light pollution, noise pollution, or something like that. And if you kind of control for that or try to mitigate against that, I think your hauntings will stop, and and they have. But for the most part, it's been those people that just want to be believed, that they want their story to be believed. And that's really kind of what we give them. That's what we try to do, too. We try to debunk whatever it is Mm -hmm. first. Absolutely. Give them some kind of a logical answer. Know that it, explain to them, we we understand that something's going on, but let's Mm -hmm. try and figure out what it is. And if we can outrule anything, then end of it, mm-hmm. which is, which happens. Obviously it happens. Right. How do you, fi- how do you find the locations across the country yourself? How do you choose them? Um, it's kind of a mix of us doing research, just really hearing other teams investigate them or they contact us. So for example, when we first started, the first thing that we wanted to go to some of the quote unquote known locations because we really wanted to build our portfolio in the field. So our first investigation was a West Virginia State Penitentiary. Our next investigation was Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum 
Pilgrim, followed by St. Augustine Lighthouse. And we just kind of went down uh, the list after that, Lizzie Borden House, Villisca Axe Murder House, um, because we really wanted to enhance our techniques to see if we could corroborate other teams and what they found. And so then after that, when people kind of started noticing kind of what we were doing, then we started being asked to to come to different places. We were the first to investigate the Ma Barker House in Central Florida, which was a great investigation. We were asked to go to uh, Shaker Cigar Bar up in Milwaukee. So that was a lot of fun. So it really kind of, it just kind of varies. Sometimes we'll, we'll research it and scope it out. And sometimes they'll call us and ask if we'd like to investigate there. Well, I went through your list <laughs> <laughs> and I selected a bunch I thought we could talk about. Sure. For example, the Monticello Opera House in Florida. For the listeners, it was built in 1890 and it's a 311-seat historic theater which produces year-round entertainment to the public, such as concerts, plays, musicals, dinner theater, children's theater, and other events. What is set to go on there? That was built in the late 1800s by a guy named John Perkins and it, it was a great location in the sense that there was a lot of tourists coming to the area via the railroad system there. When the interstate kind of came through and it allowed people to travel by by car and the the railway kind of moved away or rail travel kind of moved away, then the tourism really kind of started to to decline after that. So Mr. Perkins, after, after he built it and he had great success with it, the tourism decline really kind of hit him hard. So he tried to have some other things in this little... It's, it's kind of like it's got a storefront outside of it as well. So we tried to have like a pharmacy and some mercantile and general uh, businesses there also. But it really wasn't as successful as he was hoping it was going to be. So the reports are that after he passed, he came back to kind of watch over his opera house, you know, because this this really was um, his labor of love for the community. Um, so there were reports of seeing shadow figures in there, reports of hearing disembodied voices in there. Light anomalies are said to happen there as well. When we investigated, it was just Jenny, Jenny and myself that night, and we still have yet to release that video. We're, we're kind of still going through some of the audio and, and uh, video footage that we captured there, but it was a very interesting night. There were some things that we couldn't explain. There was some shadow play that that we absolutely have no idea what caused it. There was a couple of light anomalies that we saw kind of walking back and forth in the seating area there. So it was a very interesting night, and, and I'm very excited to release that video soon. Who does the videoing when you're doing an investigation out of the two of you? Well, we kind of both do. We rely very heavily on static cameras. So when we go into a location, we will set up static night vision video cameras as well as voice recorders pretty much in every area that we can inside the location because we want to have eyes and ears on as much of the of the property as we can. And so that's a majority of our video footage. We also wear body cameras. So we all have a timestamp of where we are in the location. So for example, if we're listening to a voice recorder from room A and I hear a noise or something I can't explain, I'll go back and cross-reference where everybody was at that exact time to make sure none of us caused that noise or that anomaly. And so that is that makes up some of our video as well. And then um, we just kind of switch off back and forth as to who's recording, you know, with a cell phone or something like that. But a majority of what we will put out on our, our videos is captured from our static cameras. Static camera. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. We have a historical theater here in Sussex as well from the 1800s. And I wrote about it in the first book 
the first hauntings book, mm-hmm. but that was really from people's stories that they shared with me. It wasn't from us actually being able to get into the the venue, and that is something that I'm working on. I, I, you oh, know, cool. we talked to one person in town who says introduces you to somebody else, and so on and so on, and oh yeah, the owner wants to have you in there, mm-hmm. but then actually getting in touch with him and having him to return your phone calls is a different story. Oh. So I'm wondering, okay, does he really want us in there, or is he just saying that, or is somebody else just saying it? So I'm really looking to try and to get into that theater because I know it's haunted from the various stories that I've heard from people, which enabled me to write the chapter on it. Mm-hmm. But to get in there is is a totally different ball game, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're fun locations to investigate. You know, each one of the locations that we've gone to are so unique, not just from their historical perspective, but also you know from the physical structure itself. So to, the the Opera House, the Monticello Opera House, was a very cool investigation just because it's different than you know an axe murder house or a penitentiary or you know a lighthouse or something like that so each one of them are very different but that was a a really interesting investigation for sure well you had mentioned an elementary school i had one in franklin new jersey here in sussex Mm -hmm. county called immaculate conception a catholic church and catholic school and it was the school in the nuns building that was haunted and i remember when i was first writing the story because obviously somebody had reached out to me and say oh i was a teacher in that school and i had an experience there i would love to share it with you and she said i was connected with the teacher before me who came in and she had experiences and then the priest came in to ask me about it because he'd heard us talking about it and he told us about his experiences which I thought was really cool because a Catholic priest talking about his ghostly experiences you don't hear that too often that's different right that's interesting (laughs) yeah and and then she was sharing with me um, two of her students came and they were complaining about stuff so there I had a whole slew of stories about this one location and so what I like to do when I'm writing a chapter is I put it out on social media and say look I've got a whole bunch of stories already about Immaculate Conception I would love to hear does anybody else have anything to share and at the time I really got like backlash from all the Catholics and I was born and raised a Catholic and I'm, I'm a Christian but you know I had seven kids that went in that school and nothing ever happened I don't know what you get so I finally said look I don't know what to tell you but I got two teachers the priest and two kids telling me that stuff happened so it may not have happened to you or your seven kids but it's happening <laughs> I was like whoa you know but you yes. said you post town elementary school in Ohio. Mm -hmm. What is said to have been going on there and what happened when you investigated it? Uh, Well, the reports there are, it it really does run the gamut for as far as reports go. So there was a train accident at one point behind the school. I mean, the train tracks are literally 150 yards from the back of the school. So there were reports of a train accident happening there and they used the school for triage of the victims. So the reports are that some of those that that were um, killed in the train accident uh, haunt that, that elementary school. There are reports of of just disembodied voices of sounds. There's a room up on the second floor called the doll room. And this is a very interesting room because um, people donate or put on loan dolls for this room. So it's a huge classroom that's just filled with dolls. It's it's pretty creepy. So there's reports. Dolls creepy. Yeah. So um, there are reports of actually... Yeah, there are reports of, of, of dolls that are actually haunted, being uh, like a haunted item being in that room. This is actually the next video that I'm working on that I will be releasing next for Soul Sisters. But I'll just share with you, we captured some great disembodied voices there. Um, there was one instance during the night where those static cameras that I mentioned, we had one of them sitting in a classroom and nobody was in the area. We hadn't been in the area for about 30 to 40 minutes and the camera just moves. Something just, just takes it and just moves 
moves it, which is kind of interesting. So we had some different anomalies like that, and some things moving that we couldn't explain. And there's one instance where it, it sounded like the blinds moved in one of the rooms, the um, the vertical blinds. And so that was kind of interesting. But the disembodied voices, there, there are several very good, I'd call class A EVPs that we captured that we'll be releasing in our next video. But it's again, it's just one of those, those buildings that you just, it's so interesting to investigate, right? It's this two-story school, and then it's got underground, it's got the cafeteria, it's got the gymnasium, uh, you know, kind of uh, a little bit of the subterranean type of gymnasium, which is a little bit different than anything we have in Florida. So it's just a very cool investigation. Um, on that one, we were joined by Miranda from Ghost Biker Explorations and Sarah Jane from uh, Paranormally Blonde. So they were guest investigators with us. And so there was just Jenny and myself, uh, Sarah Jane and Miranda. So they're just four of us. And we were able to actually stay the night in that location. So we were there for a day and a half. So that was pretty fun. Is it still a functioning school or no? No, no, no. It closed in the early 1990s, mid 1990s, I believe. So there's a private owner that owns it. And he and his wife actually live just behind the school. So he's just allowed paranormal investigators to investigate it. And it's one of those that like I said, there are just some things that we cannot explain. There's one instance where we are clearly downstairs on the first floor, but yet a static voice recorder that we had in one of the classrooms, you hear somebody somebody talking and there's absolutely nobody else on the property. So that was uh, very interesting. And it was just a, a very cool um, investigation for us. And he still has the doll room, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's hundreds of them. And you know, I don't, wow. I don't get creeped out very much. I don't get creeped out very easily, but you know, Do- you're, you're standing in this room. <laughs> and you've got a hundred dolls looking at you. It's like, okay, this is a little bit much, but you I know, at, at, yeah. at, the, at the same time, it's it's a pretty interesting experience. For me, there is no doubt in my mind that audio footage is real proof and evidence. I mean, people can say anything they want, you know, because videos can be manipulated, they say, and all this, that, and the other thing. But for audio, I really feel like you got that. It's just crazy. How, mm-hmm. how could you deny that kind of proof? And I love it when we get something like that because that's really a connection you'll be having a conversation and saying something and you don't even know what the answer is until you listen to it. It's like, oh my God, they answered. <laughs> you know, and now now with the equipment we have these days that you could just rewind and listen right away. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we heard you and thank you for responding. And it's like, oh that's mm-hmm. just the coolest thing for sure. Yeah, it really is. And we've been very fortunate to capture, again, those that we can't explain. And it's really for us, because we're an all-female team, um, when you capture a male's voice, it's very easy for us to say, okay, that's not us. Or we capture a child's voice. And, you know, there's absolutely no children on, on any of these investigations. Um, we were at the Exchange Hotel in Gordonsville, Virginia, which is a hotel that was built pre-Civil War. But during the Civil War, it was converted into a field hospital hospital and it saw both Union and Confederate soldiers. And there's been over, there were 700 deaths in that hospital. So one of the reports are that there's this child who was actually killed um, close by on one of the railroad tracks there. His name is Jeremiah and his uh, spirit is said to haunt the building. And um, we had a voice recorder on one of the beds in the room there. And again, no children anywhere, even remotely close to this building. And we captured a voice saying, a little child's voice saying, hi, this 
this is my bed, which was mm. fantastic because it, it's like he's interacting with the voice recorder, right? Like, hey, you're sitting on my bed. So just some great EVPs like that. We've been very fortunate to capture and and just really kind of adds to the narrative that something is going on here that we can't explain. Sure. We went on an investigation in this place called Burn Bray Mansion in Glens Bay, New York, which is probably about half an hour away from where I live in Sussex County. Okay. And it just so happens that the history of that, that building, there's a little girl named Ellie who had passed away. And my name is Eleanor. And mm-hmm. growing up, everybody called me Ellie. So I had that connection when we went in. And it was the first thing I said when I went into the building. I said, hi, Ellie. My name is Ellie. Mm-hmm. And we were there for a weekend ghost investigation with another paranormal team who was recording everything. and had the dark room. They had us wearing audio names. Uh, so they didn't miss a trick. Mm-hmm. And at the point when we were in the dark room, they did it in couples. You know, okay. two people would go into the dark room at a time. And there was two people in there ahead of my daughter and I. And they came out and they said, the little girl doesn't want to talk to us. She wants Ellie. Aww. <laughs> so my daughter and I had our turn in the dark room. And they were waiting for me because I'm Ellie. Yeah. And making this connection with this little girl. She and I sang some, I think, kindergarten songs, a lullabies. I think we even sang like Ring Around the Rosie. I can't really, really remember what the song was that my daughter and I sang to this little girl. And uh, after the audio, they came up with. He said, hi, my name is Ellie. And I thought, wow, that was so cool. That's awesome. And then you were were talking just a little while ago about the uh, train tracks behind the school and the accident. Mm -hmm. I did a story uh, in my last book, which was released in Halloween of last year, about the Rockport train wreck, which took place in Rockport in Warren County over here. And I kind of just went on a gut to bring the team there at one point because it's really just the location of that the tracks are there and they do use them for, I guess, um, trains, but not not passenger trains anymore. It's just kind of cargo trains that come through. But the actual site has a monument on it that somebody had erected for all the people that had died there in 1925 when the accident took place. A storm came through and washed out the track. And of course, that made the train derail when it came through. And then it was just a horrific accident. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let me bring the, the team there because I really think that we, we could probably get stuff happening there. And we've gone there three times. But the very first time we went there, the uh, we were on the tracks and the lights start going off. And we jump off the tracks because we hear the lights. You know, when the, the lights go ding, 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 and they flash yeah. on and off. We're thinking, oh, my God, could we, could we get off the tracks. There's a train coming. And we're jumping off the tracks and no train comes. Wow. It's like, wait, I think they're trying to get our attention. That's fantastic. So when we caught on, that, yeah, when, when we caught on that that's what was happening, we were actually having interaction. It happened six more times. One was the last, just before we left, it was kind of like, thank you so much for coming here and, and letting us know you're here and communicating with us. And, you know, we'll come back again. And it was almost like a goodbye with the lights going off. It was the craziest thing. But we did get that going off on audio. And wow. then somebody, somebody else on one of the other times that we were there caught a train, a locomotive on the track. Going, wow, that is absolutely fantastic. That, that must that must have been like residual, I would think, but it was still amazing nonetheless to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that you sounds know? like an that sounds like a very cool investigation. And you know, when you have yeah. those locations, whether it be a a train uh, crash or an airplane crash or something like that, where you you know you had that sudden instant loss of life, it, it really is an extremely 
interesting place to investigate. Oh, yeah, it really is. And then one of the mediums was picking up on names and we wrote them down and then we checked the passenger manifest after we were done and those names were on the manifest. Wow. Which was That's also amazing crazy. validation. When, for sure. something comes, when something comes when it comes full circle like that, I'm just blown away, blown mm-hmm. away. Yeah, absolutely. You had uh, you had went to the May Stinger house in Florida. What's the history on that house? Well, that was an interesting location. This house is in Brooksville, Florida. It, it has a very, very long history, but um, the reports are that there are the family members of the, the May Stringer uh, family um, that inhabit that location. So the reports are that, you know, it was, it belonged to a gentleman who lost his wife very early in life. He had a child. So in order to help care for that child, he married a, a very young bride who was his, obviously his second wife. They had two more children together and there was an, the, you know, kind of you know, the, the progression of life, two of those children actually ended up passing away inside the house. So a very traumatic just storyline from the entire family standpoint. But we're, with regard to the, the paranormal hauntings, disembodied voices, there's actually a lot of reports of objects moving. So one of the docents there was, was kind of telling us a story that um, as part of the museum, they've got a dining room table set up with the dinette sets all in front of the chairs there. So they have, you know, teacups and plates and all of that. And so she said she was given a tour and she's just talking and the teacup just lifts up and then turns itself over and sets itself back down and everybody in the room saw it. So th- th- things being wow. moved, noises, footsteps. For that investigation, it was just Jenny and myself. And we captured a few uh, a few disembodied voices. The most notable was up in the attic area. And that's said to be inhabited by either a woman in a blue dress or and or the spirit of a gentleman who tried to be an actor in life and he wasn't very successful, but he had rented a room up there in that house. And so um, we captured some interesting phenomena up there in the attic. It it wasn't it probably it wasn't one of our most active investigations, but we did have some things that we couldn't explain. Again, we captured the, those voices, those couple of voices that I mentioned. So it, it's a very uh, it's a very cool and unique house to to investigate. Mm. Sounds like a history like that with all the children dying and mm-hmm. yeah, that's so sad. Well, yeah. you mentioned also Old Hamilton County Jail in Jasper, Florida, Brushy Mountain State Pen mm-hmm. in Pet Petros, Tennessee. Is that what how do you say Petros Petros? <laughs> Old Gilchrist County Jail the Adel Jail in West Virginia State Penitent. Wow, you investigated quite a few jails. Uh-huh. Any particular reason for doing so many of them? It really just their interesting history uh, and the reports of paranormal activity. Probably the one that was the most active was for us the old Gilcrest County Jail in Trenton, Florida. Um, this was a jail that was built in 1928. It was in operation until 1968. And it's just a very small county jail. It has four small cells on the, top, on the bottom floor and then four small cells up on on the top floor and there's a small jailer's cottage that's connected via a doorway there at the in the back of the of the jail. So very small footprint but a lot of just country inmates, if you will. They house both men and women. Anything from cursing to spitting on the sidewalk to murderers, they were all housed in there together. So a lot of violence in that jail when it was in operation. After it closed in 1968, it set vacant up until the early 2000s. And so because it's in such a very rural area, it really became a haven for drug activity, for prostitution. Um, A lot of other criminal activity happened inside that jail while 
it said vacant. So then when the owner, a private owner, purchased it in the early 2000s, she allowed paranormal investigators to go in. It really just kind of blew my mind. It was for us, just one, we said, hey, you know, it's close to where we live. Y'all want to go and investigate. And we really thought it was going to be kind of like a sleeper investigation for us. So the first night I investigated, it was with Miranda from Ghost Biker Explorations. And it just blew our minds how active that location was. Everything from disembodied voices, both audibly and captured on audio recorders to shadow figures that we saw. They, there were shadow figures that were crossing through our laser grids that we had set up. Our SLS camera was picking up anomalies, doors slamming, footsteps running at us. It was just an amazing night. So that mm. is a very, very active location. Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary is another very active location. I just think because of the, the historical narrative behind that, this was a jail that was in operation from 1896 to 2009. Um, and it really had had, uh, it really housed the worst of the worst in Tennessee. James mm. Earl Ray uh, was housed there after he shot Martin Luther King. And so just a lot of, of interesting activity when we were there, shadow figures, footsteps, door slamming, noises, voices, all kinds of different things. Uh, seven years ago, maybe even more, the uh, Philadelphia Penitentiary started advertising that people could come in and do investigations. And I mean, it was widely advertised and I was all excited and I got a bunch of us together to go expecting one thing and then getting another because we all drove out there, stood online for three hours. And by the time we got in, it was more of a laser show than anything. You know, when they set up like tunnels of maze and you're walking through and people pop out at you and all the uh, lights yeah. in your face and the noise. And it was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I wanted the whole let's walk in and go into the cells and investigate kind of thing on our own. It, it was nothing like that huge disappointment. <laughs> of course, yeah. And then I found, found out from people afterwards that you could actually go and investigate the cells and, and what have you, but I just never ventured back after that point. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard of that location. Obviously, we haven't investigated it, but I have heard of that location. Yeah. The Fort Mifflin in Philly sounded really exciting. I mean, it's a National Historic Landmark, which today is a museum open to the public with one of the only intact Revolutionary War battlefields and the only fort in Philadelphia. I'm sure there's tons of residual energy there, ghostly activity and spiritual attachments to items. But yeah. what was said to you about what goes on there what happened when you went? Uh, Fort Mifflin is absolutely fantastic. And I, I absolutely put it up there as, as one of the highlights of our, our investigative career, honestly, because first of all, when you go into Fort Mifflin, this is a, a, a former Revolutionary War fort. So you're touching the, the bricks that were laid by revolutionaries, right? The When George Washington was trying to get out of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, he asked a small army of men to hold to the extremity, and they held off the entire British armada there in the water so George Washington could move his men out of the area. So just a lot of history, and just to be there in that fort and stand there and really kind of immerse yourself, that was a, just a great experience in and of itself. Uh, paranormally speaking, it was absolutely fantastic for us. We were capturing disembodied voices. That's the first time we actually captured a shadow figure. There's a casemate. And a casemate is a, a subterranean room where they held munitions during the war. And so there was a subterranean uh, casemate, casemate 11. It's about seven feet underground. It's made out of rock. There's only one entrance in. It's a set of stairway, uh, set of stairs. You go down and into this little room that could probably fit, I don't know, about five people comfortably. But after that, it's, it's just so small and tight. And so while it was built to house munitions, through research, they found out that during the Revolutionary 
war, it was actually used as a solitary confinement cell to house this guy by the name of William Howe, who was tried for treason and subsequently was was hung there on the fort. So um, when we went in there, we took some trigger items, we took some water, we took a cigarette and we took some bread and we left it in there for him. We said, you know, you know, Mr. Howe, this is for you. Uh, you know, it's, it'll be here for you for tonight. Have it if you want it, move it if you want it. But this is for you. And in the doorway, we had set a stationary night vision video camera next to a laser grid and you could see the lasers running through the the little room there and during the night a shadow figure walked from right to left from the wall it comes out of the wall walks across the room and out the other wall and so that's the first time we captured a a shadow figure on on camera so that was a fantastic night for us again we were capturing disembodied voices of men and women different things like there was one instance where I asked who is your president and we got the answer Lincoln so that was pretty neat and and just different things like that. So I, I highly recommend Fort Mifflin to just just for the history, but to as an investigation location to anybody out there. Oh, I'm sure the listeners are going to be thrilled to hear about these new and different places that they could try out across the country if they want to take their little trips. You mm-hmm. mentioned earlier the Lizzie Borden House in Fall Rivers, Massachusetts, the location of America's greatest unsolved murder mystery. And that mm-hmm. took place in August of 1892. The house itself is historic due to its age, but it's notorious for being the most haunted house in the United States, which I was surprised to hear. I'm not so sure if I believe that, but it is open to the public daily as a museum for house tours, ghost tours, and ghost hunts. Why don't you go ahead and explain to my listening audience what it was that actually occurred there if they don't know who Lizzie Borden is? Sure, yes. As you said, Lizzie Borden, um, she and her family lived in this house, and in 1892, she was actually 32 years old. Her stepmother, Abby, and her father, Andrew, were bludgeoned to death inside this house. Lizzie was arrested for the murder, but she was was acquitted. About a year later, they uh, the jury of 12 men acquitted her. And the interesting thing is that is that she lived in Fall Rivers after that. She stayed, after she was acquitted, she stayed in the area until she died in uh, 1927 at the age of 67. And so that was a bit, very interesting fact to me. I think if you were charged with a murder, you'd probably get out of Dodge if you were acquitted of that murder, but she stayed. And so the, the house is very interesting. If you see it on television shows or paranormal shows, it, it looks a little bit bigger than it is. It's got a very unique and small footprint. By unique, I mean the the rooms are kind of disjointed in such a way that you've kind of got to walk through one room to get to another room, to get to the kitchen, to get to the dining room. So there's not a lot of of flow or continuity of of, of walking around the house. It's kind of interesting. But when we were there, we, we stayed obviously the night there. We had the entire house to ourselves and we immediately turn on our voice recorders as soon as we cross the threshold of any location. Even if we're schlepping up, uh, you know, suitcases or whatever, um, we've got our voice recorders going. So in that night, we we started our voice recorders as soon as we got there, and there were five of us on this investigation. So three of us were upstairs, just kind of putting our stuff together in the rooms and getting some equipment out. And my sisters, Jenny and Michelle, were sitting down in the parlor. And so you just hear them talking about the day and, you know, not talking anything about the investigation, nothing, just talking about the day. And you, we captured a man's voice saying, I'm standing right here next to you. Neither one of them heard it in the moment, but you can clearly hear that this man said, hey, I'm, I'm with you, right? Like he's trying to get their attention. So about Which is an, so sad to hear that after the fact. If you had known when it happened, you could actually let him know and give him that acknowledgement that he'd been seeking. Right, right. And, and then about an hour later, Jenny and our investigator, Kara, they were sitting in that parlor room and they were talking about the differences between the Velisca Axe murder house and the Lizzie Borden murders because we had investigated the Velisca Axe murder house earlier. And so 
they were just talking about the differences and and Kara said, either way, being axed to death would be a horrible way to go. And we captured a man's voice saying it was. Ooh. So that that was very, obviously, a very intelligent response to, to the conversation that's going on. So it's saying, hey, I'm acknowledging that it, it definitely was a horrible way to go. Later on during the night, we were all five of us on the third floor. And we were inside the room where the maid, Bridget Sullivan, the maid to the Bordens, that, that was her room. So all five of us were in there. The the door was shut. And so we're all in there just talking. We have a K2 meter on the floor and Miranda had another K2 meter in her hand. So you hear her say, and we have a, a audio and video of this. So you hear her say, and you see her. So she says, I'm going to put this other K2 down so you can play with it too. And outside a man's voice said, ignore them. And we all heard it. Everything that we had recording captured it. Jenny was standing by the door and she whipped it open real quick to make sure that there was nobody in the hallway. And of course there wasn't. So again, very intelligent responses. We capture the voices of children laughing and, and manipulating some of our tools. So it was just a very interesting investigation. And, and one of those where most of the things that we captured were intelligent. They were interacting with us on some level. I've heard that the house that she lived in at the time of her death is far more haunted than the house at the murder site. Have you heard that? I have. That was called Maplecroft. During her life, she and her sister wanted to live on the uh, essentially the other side of the track, if you will. Rich, yeah, rich, yeah, so yeah. Andrew Borden was extremely wealthy. Um, he was in the textile industry and he had a lot of real estate property as well. He was extremely wealthy, but he lived as a miser and he, he pretty much forced his entire family to do that as well. Lizzie and her sister, they were very disgruntled about the fact that he wasn't more outgoing with his wealth. And so after she and her, after she and her sister inherited the estate, the Borden estate after the murders and after her acquittal, she went to that other side of town and bought Maplecroft and that's where she lived. You're right, it is supposed to be extremely haunted. The owners at the time of our investigation, they were not allowing paranormal investigators into that location. I believe it's still for sale. They wanted to open a bed and breakfast there, but they did not get permission from the, the town council to to do that, but it is supposed to be extremely haunted. Oh, what a shame that they would buy the building and not be able to open up a bed and breakfast. That really sucks. Yeah, it was interesting because they they, they also owned the Lizzie Borden house. So it was the owner of the Lizzie Borden house. Oh, they, okay. bought, they bought Maplecroft as well. You know, again, they wanted to, to have that bed and breakfast, but it was just never really approved. Mm, what a shame. Mm -hmm. Well, some tidbits of information for the listening audience. There was an occasion that Lizzie and her sister moved in together in that place in Maplecroft and they were with each other for a number of years before had, before they had a huge falling out. No one obviously knows what that was, mm -hmm. but it was so bad that her sister left her there and she lived by herself until her death in that home. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and what's interesting right. is, yeah, that's correct. And, 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 go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, no, what's, what's also interesting is they actually died with, I think, within seven days of each other, right. which was kind of interesting. Again, that was in 1927. And one of the things that Lizzie was very active in her life was she was very much an animal rights activist. So when she died, she left the bulk of her inheritance and her estate to the Rescue League, the Animal Rescue League of Fall Rivers. So uh, because she had no heir at that point, because Emma. Wow, her, I, never, her, I never knew that. That is so interesting. 
thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, never knew that. I did hear about the speculation that the argument between her and her sister had something to do about with whether she had done the murder of her stepmother and her father and that she apparently confessed her sister that she had and that's why her sister left. Of course, that's all speculation, mm-hmm. and, but it really makes for a good story if that is exactly what had happened. Yeah. yeah. The entire thing, I mean, obviously it's still an unsolved murder. Most people think that Lizzie did it. I, you know, I, I think that she did it as well, whether or not mm-hmm. it was because of the way her father was spending money or not spending money or, you know, some other things that have been um, theorized as to how he was treating his his daughters. I just don't know. But when you step into that house and you see the layout and, and how it's configured, to me, it's very, it'd be almost incomprehensible to say, to acknowledge that you're in the house at the time of the murders because Abby was killed about 90 minutes before Andrew. They know that through forensics. So her body was already cold. Her blood was starting to congeal. Andrew, they found, I mean, his blood was still flowing. So they found him about 10 minutes after he'd been killed. So you put yourself in the house and and Bridget Sullivan puts herself in the house as well. And again, if you see the way it's configured, I find it very hard to think that two people are murdered. One is struck 17 times in the head the other struck 11 times in the head and you don't hear a thing uh, that to me is it's almost incomprehensible to think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's very strange how you heard the voice say ignore them and I wonder if it's because he was trying to tell you he was standing next to you and you guys didn't hear him and maybe he just got so frustrated that when you guys were saying here's a K2 for you to mess with if you want to he was telling everybody else that's a spirit in there just ignore them they don't they don't hear us anyway just ignore them <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> yeah that that's a very good theory you know the the way we kind of interpreted it was we had just heard the voices of some children laughing um, um, when we were in the room, the adjacent room, and we think some children were manipulating some of our equipment, such as our periscope and our EDI box. So I, we thought at the time, uh, we didn't go where you went. We kind of thought at the time that when she, when Miranda put it down and said, you can play with this, he was telling the kids, the spirit of the kids to ignore it, um, to ignore him. Don't go in and play with it like you did in the other room, the other equipment that you had just manipulated. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> When I was a kid in the 70s, there was a movie that came out with Elizabeth Montgomery playing Lizzie Borden. And I still remember my mother and I getting all hyped up to watch that movie Mm -hmm. because we'd heard about the story of the murders. And here she was in this movie, Elizabeth Montgomery. And it was very exciting to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's so many, you know, different documentaries and movies and stories made about it. You know, the funny thing is I am frequently a guest on podcasts and the last several that I've been on been international. So UK, Australia. And the funny thing is, is when we start talking about the Lizzie Borden house, the host almost always has said, I know about the Lizzie Borden house because of the Simpsons. Like, okay, well, (laughs) let me fill you you in a little bit more in depth about it. uh, So you're not getting your information from a cartoon. It it really was a great investigation for us, a very interesting place to, to get to stay the night in and be a part of for that night. So we really enjoyed that investigation. Now you've got me curious about the Simpson episode. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen it either. I did not why I can I'm one of the people that can say I never watched an episode of The Simpsons so no, I have no idea what they're I. talking about I just laugh and go with it so yeah nor have I that is so funny <laughs> well you mentioned earlier too you went to the Villisca Axe Murder House in Villisca 
Iowa. Mm-hmm. A sign outside of that building warns visitors away rather than welcoming them in. The walls still protect the identity of the murderer or murderers who bludgeoned to death the entire family of Josiah Moore and two overnight guests on June 10th, 1912. So obviously they were probably haunting the building. What happened when you were there? Well, the story behind that is is pretty horrific and, and, and graphic. So you're right. It was the Moore family, Josiah Moore and his wife, Sarah. They had four kids and then there were two kids, Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were staying the night at that house on this particular Sunday night. So they had gone to a church service, a church function. And so they had returned home and they, you know, they got prepared for bed. And, and let me just backtrack. This house is extremely small. It is, it has a very small footprint. It's got a very small kitchen downstairs, a small sitting area with an adjacent bedroom, and then a very narrow stairway up to essentially a loft area that's divided by a half a wall. And upstairs is where Josiah and Sarah Moore slept. And then the, the half wall makes another bedroom where the kids slept. And then there was an attic partition off of that essentially loft area. So you'd have to go through a closet door to get into that attic area. So they had gone to this church function and they came home and the Moore family, all of them, the four kids and Sarah and Josiah went upstairs to sleep and Ina and Lena Stillinger slept in the downstairs bedroom. Later that night, after they had all gone to bed, somebody had been sitting in the attic. It's still an unsolved mystery as to who, but it was a man that was sitting in the attic waiting for them to come home. And he walked out and he bludgeoned Sarah and Josiah while they slept, then went into the kids' room, killed all four of the Moore children. Um, They were all under the age of 11 at that point. Um, So he killed all of them. And then he walked downstairs and he bludgeoned to death Ina and Lena Stillinger. After that, he walked around and he covered all of the mirrors. He went into the kitchen and he washed his hands of the blood um, from, from his hands. He got himself a slab of bacon and put it on the table. He made himself a plate of food. He put the axe down in the kitchen um, proceeded to eat the food, only got about halfway through, and then left. And nobody knows who that person is. Um, so it's still an unsolved mystery. So what made this so, obviously, they, you know, th- the fact that they were killed is horrific. I'm, I'm sorry, you said that he started to eat the food, and mm-hmm. then halfway through, he stopped and got up and left? Is that what you said? Yeah, so there was a half, yeah, there was a half plate, uh, half eaten plate of food there. You know, when they, when the uh, investigators went in, there was the slab of bacon on the table, the was actually found. It was in the kitchen. Um, there was the bloody bowl of water that was in the kitchen as well. What was so horrific, beside the fact that they were murdered, is once the police got there and found out what had happened, basically everybody in the town descended on this house and were walking through it. There are reports of people taking parts of the skulls as souvenirs. They were never they were never able to really get forensics as much as you know forensics they had in 1912. They weren't able to really get any type of forensics off of this. The reports are that there's children's voices, there's men's voices, there's women's voices, there's footsteps, there's shadow figures that run through the house. It's it's, it's considered one of the most haunted houses in the country. When we went there, because it's so small, there are five of us, because it's so small, there wasn't a time when all five of us were in the house at one time. We went in as either groups of two or groups of three. And there were some instances where we would go in as, as just one of us to investigate. But we had set up our 
our night vision video cameras. We set up our voice recorders in all areas of the house. And during those investig or during those EVP sessions, we were capturing some very fascinating things. So there's one instance where Kara and Kim were walking up the stairs to go from the first floor to the second floor. And the, the voice recorder in the attic said downstairs where the girls are sleeping. And it had an accent. It's like down there where the girls are sleeping. And it was a very male voice. There's no men on the team. And it's interesting because Lena and Ina Stillinger were the girls sleeping downstairs. So that was kind of an interesting phrase that we captured. There was another instance where Michelle and Jenny were conducting an EVP session in the room where the more kids were killed upstairs. And so when they, after they were done, they stood up and you see Michelle kind of grab her head and she said, oh, I just, just got this bad headache. And Jenny said, okay, let's get outside and get you some water. And as they're leaving, we captured a little girl's voice saying, I didn't do that, which is kind of interesting as well. One of the fascinating pieces of evidence that we captured didn't actually happen in the house. It happened outside. So right outside the house, they've got a little, a little shed um, that's the base camp for paranormal investigators, right? So it, it's where you can wash your hands, go to the bathroom, keep your food and all of that. So we were all sitting out there and we have several K2 meters. So we had two of them sitting on the, the railing there on the porch. There's the, the porch rail. So we had just set them down there, right? Because we were getting some water. We were taking a break. And these K2 meters had not gone off the entire night. So they're just sitting there on the uh, on the on the railing, and we're just sitting in the little swing, and one of us is sitting in a chair, and we're just kind of talking. And all of a sudden, the the K two meters start going off like crazy, going off. And so we're sitting there watching it, and one of us grab a camera, and so we start recording it. And they're side by side, and one's a gray one, and one's a black one. And we're like, okay, stop, stop messing with our equipment, and just go to the gray one. Just the gray one lit up, not the black one. Okay, we said stop that. Go to the black one. Just the black one lit up. And so we said. We said, are you Josiah Moore? No response. Are you the Stillinger girls? No response. We said, are you Sarah Moore? And they start lighting up. And so for about 20 minutes, we go through this question and answer session with what we feel is the spirit of Sarah Moore. And we finally ended up asking, is your killer still inside also? And we got a positive response off that. So that oh, was probably, yeah. So that was probably terrible. Oh, yeah, that's that, horrible. Yeah. So that was probably one of the most interesting things that happened um, with regard to equipment activity that we got that night. Oh boy, just think about that though. That's so horrible. They had to endure that attack mm-hmm. only to have to live with him in death as well. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear stuff like that, it almost makes me feel like he's keeping them there, like he won't let them go, like he's entrapping them. And and that's a possibility. You know, when you have a place like that and, and kind of like Trans-Allegheny and some of these other locations where you have such horrific acts that are going on, it's almost like it, it permeates into the walls and the house itself becomes basically a, a time capsule, if you will, for that energy. And mm. I think that's what's going on there. It's just it it, it the, the walls themselves literally saw this this horrific act going on. And that's what it's trying to tell paranormal investigators. Well, you mentioned the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum from West Virginia. This national historic landmark served as a sanctuary for the mentally ill beginning in the mid-1800s. It's a, a 
160-year-old asylum, which holds fascinating stories of Civil War raids, a gold robbery, the curative effects of architecture, and the efforts of determined individuals to help better the lives of the mentally ill. Obviously, things happened in there. <laughs> and I'm sure it's come out over time. Just even the methods that they used back in the day that were just so horrific. Yeah. You know, they thought it was yeah. medically okay, and it just wasn't. And it's horrible. But stories abound, it, I'm sure. It, it, they really do. Uh, as you said before, this this building was built in 1864, and it was the dream of Thomas Kirkbride. And it was based on the Kirkbride plan. And his basic medical philosophy was, even if you were mentally incapacitated, that shouldn't uh, preclude you from having a, a life of luxury, right? So they built this grand, this grand facility. It's massive. This is a massive facility. And it's it's one of the large, it is the largest hand cut stone building in North America. That's how big this is. It, it was based on this philosophy of really low patient, high doctor uh, ratio care. And so a lot of sunlight, big rooms, really giving the patients the best of the best. It was built to, ho to hold 250 patients. At that time, when it first started, it started seeing tuberculosis patients and all of that. But then it started accepting the, uh, the, medic the mentally uh, incapacitated or what they called insane at the time. And the problem became that when you were classified as insane, there were so many things that you that those categories would fall under, right? So if you read too many books, if you cursed, if you if you were too energetic, if you were too lazy, that could be a sign of mental incapacitation. And so you had at that time a lot of husbands who wanted to get rid of their wives and uh -huh. they said they took them into the facility and said, you know, she reads too much. I think she's insane. And they would have to admit her. And the only person who could get her out of the facility was the person who took her into the facility. Oh, so of course, so <gasps> a lot, most of the patients were female at this time. Some of them were pregnant. So you have children being born in this facility. So by, you know, the early 1900s, um, 1920s, the, the patient care really digressed from one of really therapeutic helping patients to more of patient experimentation. So you've got shock treatments, water therapy, cold water bath treatments, lobotomies, all happening in this facility. And so mm -hmm. by, by 1994, you've got this facility that was built to hold 250 patients. There's 2,600 patients in this facility at this time. So absolutely abysmal conditions. And so it was closed in 1994. And then a private owner purchased it and again, allowed paranormal investigations to take place in the facility. And it's it's really off the chain with regard to, to paranormal activity. When we were there, there were five of us and there were two docents because they had to have somebody on site when you're there. So there were five of us and two docents. And there was at one point where we asked the docents to come with us on a walk around. We were down on the first floor and all of us on the property are standing right there. And yet we captured this blood curdling scream from down the hallway. So that was kind of interesting. We were capturing voices all throughout the building. There was one instance where we were up in a third floor room that's supposed to be inhabited by a child spirit named Emily. We were all the five of us were all in this room and on the windowsill we had put a glow-in-the-dark balloon a k2 meter and a flashlight and so we're just trying to make contact with emily and we said if if you're here can you touch something on the windowsill there's no power but can you touch something on the windowsill and right at that time the balloon starts to move the k2 goes off and the flashlight turns on and so that just really builds the case that something is manipulating those objects right something is acting upon them so that was a pretty cool experience for us. But again, just being in this location and it was our second investigation. We oh, just, wow. <laughs> yeah. We, we were just really
really blown away. Yeah, we're just really blown away by by the history and the paranormal activity. Do you happen to know in your history and research what happened to the children that were born there? Most of them lived their lives there, Did or they? they yeah, oh. or they would be given to family members if they would take them. But there are reports of several children that actually just grew up. I think Emily, I want to say she was six or seven, and and she actually passed away in the hospital. I think it was from tuberculosis. And so yeah, they either lived there or if family members would come and take them, that they would be transferred to them. Mm. I'm sure a lot of the energy in that building is residual too, because of all of the experimentation that went on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got to be embedded into the walls of that building. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then that's another one, you know, where it just kind of permeates the walls. And I think that the walls really are telling the story of what happened there. Right. How sad. <clears throat> well, I know you mentioned um, an old Southern funeral home in Kosciuszko. Is that Mississippi? Yep. It is. I know I, I, the local um, mortician here in town, she's a friend of mine. And I remember when I was writing my first book, she's probably like one of the first people I went to because you're thinking, funeral home's got to be haunted. And she was like, no, when they come to me, they're 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 dead. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because I really expected for her to say, oh, yeah, all the time. Because the building the funeral home is in is really old as well. It's from like the 1800s. So mm-hmm. I thought for sure. And she was like, no, but I just can't imagine that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's just not sensitive yeah, or what? she's just not paying attention. Maybe because I mean, the old Southern funeral home again, this is in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, and it was a great investigation for us. The, the reason we were there is because Miranda Young from Ghostbiker Explorations, she was the first person to investigate this location after it was available for investigations. She actually had a, a picture fall across, you know, come off the wall while she's investigating, captured a lot of different things there, disembodied voices and such. So we really wanted to investigate there as well. So when we went, it was just Jenny and myself. We're going through this funeral home. And what's interesting is when the when the funeral home closed in the early 2000s, it's essentially like they just locked the doors and left, right? So caskets were still in there. The embalming room. When you, when, you, when you go up to the embalming room, all the embalming fluid is still there. All of the equipment to embalm a body. Artifacts that they had taken from bodies that nobody claimed, like watches and dentures and wrist watches and glasses. Um, they're all in, in the drawers of this room. Ooh, so it, yeah, it, it was kind of creepy to be in. Absolutely. So, you know, that night, um, you know, the reports are that there's just a lot of activity, everything from disembodied voices to footsteps to objects moving and such. And so when we were investigating there, again, it was just Jenny and myself, <laughs> you know, we were capturing disembodied voices, but the, uh, the pieces of, the piece of equipment that we used that was the most effective was the spirit box, which is an AM FM radio that's been modified to sweep through frequencies. And so when you turn it on and you start the sweeping, it goes like it's going through all of those frequencies, right? So the theory is that the spirits will speak through the white noise. And we were capturing full phrases. There was a time where we asked, can you say one of our names? And right away it goes, Jenny, through the spirit box. And and what's interesting is after we finished that session, you see us, because we had a, a static camera in the room, you see us end the session and we turn the spirit box off and we walk out. And as we walk out and we turn to the right, you no longer see us in the room, the voice recorder captured another voice going, Jenny. 
So it, it said it again, what we weren't there. And so that was pretty cool. One of the things that I still can't explain, and I've been trying to get the, the caretaker to, to see if he can, you know, kind of replicate this, is we had a voice recorder and a static camera in that embalming room. If we didn't know it because we were downstairs at the time, but when we were, went back and listened to the audio, at midnight, the old Casio watch in one of the drawers started going off. Like the alarm started going off. And, you know, it had been in this drawer for about six years. Don't know why it started going off at midnight, but you can hear it, you know, so that was kind of interesting. So K2 hits, disembodied voices, that that was just a really interesting investigation for us. I don't think that Casio watch was a coincidence. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. Because I asked him, I said, you know, can you go and see, can you grab this watch and let me know if the alarm was set? Because you would think if the alarm was set, other paranormal investigation teams would have captured it also if it's set to go off, you know, either every night or every week or whatever. But nobody that I know of has has reported that this watch has gone off again. Right. And, you know, it really does make sense that a funeral parlor would be haunted. I mean, it's the last place the spirit goes. They'll they'll be there to watch their funeral and it's the last place they'll go before they decide whether they're going to go to the light or not. <clears throat> and if they choose to stay behind, chances are they're there. So I can't see it not being logical. Well, that also in, in the fact that, you know, when you go into a funeral home for a funeral, generally not too many people are happy. And so, again, you're in this location with a lot of people, a lot of emotion, a lot of negative emotion and, uh, you know, emotion that's that's very low. Of course, you know, and, and a funeral home sees, you know, two or three funerals probably a day. And so to have all of that emotion running constantly, I think, again, the walls and the energy in the room is going to respond to that. And so I think that's another reason why the spirits are there. To your point, you know, I, I truly believe that when we pass, we're allowed to see our funerals and, and what it looks like and who's there and, you know, who's not. And so, you know, we get to we get to kind of witness that. I just think funeral homes, by their very nature and, and the, the energy, the sad energy that they see just really kind of holds that in. And I think that's the reason why there's spirit activity there. I agree. Absolutely. Well, I've really enjoyed you sharing your stories and adventures. Oh, my goodness. It was really exciting. Yeah. I would love for you to tell the listeners how they can find you and information about you. And you say you're opening in September this wonderful museum. If anybody wants to venture to Tennessee and visit, they can go and visit that museum as well. So please share with my audience uh, you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. So the name of my team is Soul Sisters Paranormal. Our website is www.soulsistersparanormal.com. We're also very active on Facebook under Soul Sisters Paranormal, as well as on YouTube, again, under Soul Sisters Paranormal. All of our videos are there. And then, yeah, my, my business partner and I, Miranda, we opened the historic Scott County Jail in Huntsville, Tennessee, which is about an hour's west of Knoxville. The website for that is www.historicscottcojail.com. Again, you can also find us on Facebook under Historic Scott County Jail. And we're also very active on Instagram under Historic Scott County Jail there as well. So we are open. We do allow paranormal investigation teams to come in. Or if you just want to tour the, the history of the building on a day tour, take a flashlight tour. We're open for those as well. How exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with me. Yeah, absolutely. Really thank you for that. having me. Oh, yeah. I'd love to have my team visit with you one of these days, collaborate on something. We should do that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Ghostly listeners, you can follow me on my website, authoreleanorwagner.com where there are links to my books and video updates and photographs from all the Lady Ghostbuster investigations. Also, you can sign up or level up on my author Eleanor Wagner Patreon program. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you will find special bonus opportunities only available to its patrons, such as one-on-ones with me and co-hosting opportunities on episodes of Eleanor Wagner's Strange and Scary World podcast. Thank you, paranormal enthusiasts, for tuning in today. I hope you'll come back again. Remember to tap into your own gifts. Everyone has them. And in the meantime, make sure you're creeping it real. credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.